You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's edition of SpyCast. Now, I'm really pleased this week for a number of reasons. Firstly, this is the final installment of our Spy Chiefs trilogy. And with this trilogy, we see the relaunch of SpyCast 2.0. This will feature a creeping barrage of gradual changes in the weeks and months ahead. This will include improved audio, extended show notes, full transcripts, further resources, and a glossary. I'm also really pleased because Vikram just had such an interesting career. I mean, he's a career intelligence officer who got to the very summit of his field. He retired in 2003 as the director of India's External Intelligence Agency. That's the Research and Analysis Wing. I'm also really pleased because I think it's important India takes a place within SpyCast programming. Just to give you a sense of perspective, there are more people of the Muslim faith in India than in Pakistan. And Pakistan's got the fifth largest population in the world. There's more people within India's borders than in the entire Western Hemisphere. India, of course, is the world's largest democracy and it will soon overtake China as the world's largest country. It sounds like you're really busy and you're, since you have retired. Yeah, I think that's what the wife complained. She says, you got more busy <laughs> now than, than you, were when you were working. That, that, was, that was a tough period, I think, the last two and a half years. Yeah. And I was the, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was fun, I think. I think working in an intelligence organization is one of the most exciting things. Something keeps happening every day. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the adrenaline flows took over on the 1st of January 2001 and retired in March 2003. Two years okay, and so, a quarter. And, so, 
there were some interesting developments during that period, huh? Oh, yes, oh, yes. And, uh, it started off with 9-11, and of course, then we had our own uh, parliament attack in December. And, you know, before that, before that, Musharraf had visited India. He'd been invited for a last-minute sort of peace effort by Vajpayee, the prime minister. And, well, there were quite a few of us who said it won't work, and it didn't work. So in reward of that, we got one, an attack in the Srinagar Jammu and Kashmir Parliament or the Legislative Assembly, terror attack. After 9-11, we got another one in December when we had uh, the whole world coming to us, you know, the British Prime Minister, the US Secretary of State coming and telling us, oh, please hold your hand, don't do anything. We'll take care of these fellows. But of course, nothing really happened. It hasn't changed anything. But even before that, we had in 99, we had uh, Kargil, mm -hmm. the attack on Kargil by the Pakistanis. And then we had the hijacking of the aircraft. IC-814 was hijacked by terrorists and taken to Afghanistan, Kandahar eventually where we had to do a deal with them. So terror and violence and wars took a lot of my time. And then we had the Kargil Review Committee, so we had to answer questions to the committee on so-called intelligence failures. We were the fall guys, of course. <laughs> it happens every time. <laughs> It also seems to be the case here in the United States, intelligence or the fall guys. Yes. You know, as we discussed in our emails, I don't I don't want you to discuss anything you're uncomfortable with. You know, I want you to I want you to be happy. So I'm just going to go on the, the <laughs> I'm going to go on the last email that you sent me. So, <laughs> so <laughs> could you tell me? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I what I can. I will definitely you can. tell you. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll tell you. Well, the RAW, you know, the Research and Analysis Wing was formed in 1968, September 1968. It was hived off from the Intelligence Bureau, which was an all-police organization. And when the RAW was created, the idea was that it would draw talent from not just the police, but wherever it is available in the civil service. And that they would also start direct independent recruitment from the open market. It was 1971 they started this. And I think it was a very revolutionary kind of a step. And personally, I think it could have worked. But unfortunately, Mrs. Gandhi, who was the prime minister at the time our organization was formed, lost elections in 75. And the intelligence agencies are very closely connected in our system with the prime minister. And the next prime minister was uh, Mr. Morarji Desai, whose moral standards and morality standards were very high. And he had that intelligence was a bad word. And he went about hacking REW in particular. 
and uh, there was a big it was a big setback for the organization you know you're barely 9 years old and you're going to face uh, this kind of a slaughter so we had a setback and then mr desai lost the premiership but he had done the damage and gone so when mrs gandhi came back in her second term it wasn't quite the same thing and she was busy with um, with a lot of other things the uh, merger of sikh came and then we had remember we had the sikh uh, troubles that time and she was assassinated in 84 so the 80s were a bad year the united states was busy with its jihad in afghanistan pakistanis were busy making their bomb so with 90s were a period when the uh, when our organization had when the country had a series of prime ministers who came and left after a couple of years and not really paying much attention to this uh, aspect of their work or country's work things improved when uh, and when vajpayee uh, took over and we had a little more room to maneuver and play and be and be seen to be doing things and that's what i ended my career in 2003 when vajpayee was still the boss the prime minister and so we are there we do only external intelligence we don't do internal at all and we are not like the isi which does everything under the sun that uh, they have to they are there it is owned by the pakistan army which owns the country so it's is things a lot simpler there we still have financial advisors and controllers and budget restrictions and etc etc which goes on so um, you know how it is in democracies we we have to do all that what's the domestic yeah. intelligence service the intelligence bureau is our internal service it's the counterpart to the um, mi5 or fbi and uh, we are like the cia not as powerful but external yes and for a powerful country you need powerful intelligence organizations they are global truly global we are not we are much smaller our interests are was pakistan and china to begin with and then we added terrorism and then then it it just keeps growing now the concept the meaning of terrorism has has expanded in many, many ways now money laundering and human trafficking all those aspects come into it because they're all at some level terrorism human trafficking weapon smuggling drug smuggling they all get interlinked sometimes the same group does a couple of things together so we have to be there also keep a watch on that the area of focus for the RNAW it's really south asia and china yes and that's been so but i think that's going to change as we look ahead and we look ahead say 2050 or 40 and as we hopefully grow bigger and better we want to be a trend 10 trillion trillion dollar economy by year x so our needs will increase our, the, our threat perceptions will change and the threat the quality of threat will also change because now it's going to be about artificial intelligence and computers and ciphers and 
cyber. So all that is is going to be part of uh, the the ability to deliver threats is changing, and the ability to carry out threats also is changing. You know, in five minutes you can have a riot in ten parts of the country on WhatsApp, flash messages all over, and uh, the intelligence won't have time to react. How did you find yourself in the world of intelligence? When the organization was created in 1968, it was, uh, like I said in the beginning, an offshoot from the Intelligence Bureau. Many of the officers from the Intelligence Bureau came to the RAW to form the organization. And uh, they were looking for people from outside the police to join. And there was some, our expression is talent scouting, but you know, it actually means looking for new faces. And so they sent around asking for people to join a mysterious organization in, in the government whose name was still not known properly to many. So we were all curious and it was supposed to be something secret and glamorous, if I may, you know, for youngsters. I was young at that time. I was uh, 27. No, 28, when this thing was floated. So I put my hand up. I said, I'll have a volunteer. And um, they asked for, then they went through the usual routine of checks and interviews and uh, kept, kept a watch on me perhaps for a few weeks or months. Did a background. And then one day I said, they said, come along, join us. So there I was uh, sitting in that organization and it was, it took a while to get used to coming from a, from a system. I was, I was in the civil service before I, I'd done five years with them. I was with the posts and telegraphs. And then I switched and many people have asked me, how come you come from an organization not really connected with intelligence? But they were looking for, People from outside the police, so I was one of them. That oh. happened in 1972. You know, uh, the uh, ISI was created by an Australian in 1948. So the ISI is actually an older organization compared to the RAW. And the RAW was from the Intelligence Bureau, which was part of the British establishment. So on the 14th of August, the intelligence bearer was answerable to the King of England, as it were. On the 15th of August, it was answerable to the Prime Minister of India. Like the Indian Army, all of us were answerable to one person and quite different from the next morning. So the, the systems of work, the traditions continued for a long time. And then as threat perceptions have varied and changed, so we have to evolve new new ways of doing things and, and perceptions also change. So, but that's been an evolution. It's not as if we said day one, we're not going to do anything what they did. No, it couldn't be like that. That continuity had to be maintained to make it a gentle transition. That's a fascinating period from 1972 until you become the chief in 2001 yes. and then you leave in 2003. I mean, that's a, in the history of South Asia, that's a fascinating period, huh? 
Yes, it was. It was. It is. A lot of things happened. A lot of things happened in in the world uh, in these thirty years. Um, the Iranian Revolution, the the Soviets coming to Afghanistan, Vietnam War, and Bangladesh was created. And you know, inside, in our area, in our periphery, a lot of things happened. Then you had the Iran-Iraq War, and then you had the Iraq War, and the Iraq War Two, Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden, and and um, I know somebody asked me in 2002. Take a guess. Where would Osama bin Laden be today? Where would he be hiding? I said, well, I don't really confirm it, but he would be with the Pakistanis. And where do you think he would be kept? So I said, if I were them, I'd keep him in Abbottabad, and that's where they found him eventually. Well, that's just a coincidence. I looked at the map and said, this place looks good enough, close to the Military academy, secure, other side of the hill. Not many people go there, so so that's how it was. And well, what are some of the major things that R and A W were involved in over that time period? So seventy-two to you leaving in two thousand and three. Our main concern in seventy-two was Pakistan's attempts to get the nuclear bomb, and I begin my book. the unending game with this very aspect of i didn't say i that uh, this was the thrust of the whole thing how it was done how we discovered that they're 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 taking the uranium route not the plutonium route but they were not stopped by anyone let's pity and tell us a little bit more about that book the unending game The Unending Game is actually a book that I decided to write. You know, after retirement, I started writing a lot of. I, I had a column in the newspapers, a fortnightly column. Then I graduated to doing essays for longer pieces for books and magazines. Then chapters in books, and then editing some books. Then somebody said, "You're doing all this. Why don't you sit down and write a book yourself?" So I said, "Okay." And we don't write a book on espionage or what you did. I said, no, I can't do that. I'm not allowed to do that. It will never get published. And if I exclude all that, it won't make a story. So I won't do any memoirs. And so we thought thought about it. So I said, I'll do something on trade craft and trade craft. Necessarily doing something on trade craft in the modern sense means talking about the Russian Soviets talking about the Americans, the British, the French, and this is where it happened. All of it. This is where the Cold War and everything else was fought. So naturally, a lot of my chapters are related to that aspect of uh, the Cold War, and it's it's a it was a very fascinating period that went on. So I covered that, and then I also discovered that you know. Controlling the narrative is an essential part of the game for the government and the CIA or the intelligence agencies. Love to do that. It's 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 well, it's just done. Control the narrative to control the world, and that book has a chapter on controlling the narrative, 
And when I finished the book, I did one chapter on keeping intelligence relevant, which is mostly about India, what we should do for the future. And I, and I've been looking ahead. I'm not saying you know, what's wrong with us now. You know, if you keep talking like that, you never get anywhere. What you have to do is to think about the future and say, if you want to be successful in 30 years from now, what should you be doing today? What would be the threats then and how would you be able to handle that? And are you prepared for it? So if, if, uh, if that is what I try to argue, and I, 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 my constant refrain has been uh, that if you reform intelligence and you must, your human factor is the most important factor. If that is not right, if that is not trained or motivated, all your technical equipment and all these uh, things will just not deliver. So uh, that's that's the, the main thrust of my book. I give instances and stories. And this is your most recent book, or this is the unending game? That is the first book. The ultimate goal is the new one. And that's about narratives. That how, you know, the world, the world over, the major powers, uh, how they, you can have the best army, the, the strongest military, the strongest uh, economy, the best technology, everything else is good. But if your story doesn't sell, then you're in trouble. Also, it works the other way. United States, with all its the best army in the world, the strongest, best equipped, the entire globe is divided into military commands, hundreds of bases all over. But they haven't won a war. It is still considered the strongest, the best, the mightiest. But that's the narrative. That narrative has held. See? So that is the point I'm making, that your narrative has to be strong. You have to tell the people who you are, what you are, what you want to do. And for us, I'm marking by giving examples on how it is done the world over. It's a, not, a, not a conscious effort that somebody pins down on the blackboard. Today you shall do this. It's a thing that, you know, it's like the major establishments in the United States. One of the finest, the strongest, the best, I think, is the Council on Foreign Relations. It has the, perhaps the best brains that are there for this intellectuals, former presidents, corporate heads, journalists, writers, even actors, even, even, uh, I think, I don't forget, remember, George, uh, George, who, I forget his name, sorry, never mind. They are members of the uh, Council of Foreign Relations. They are, they are described in the West in the United States is the Wall Street's think tank, or alternatively, the second department of state. So that's, that's the power. It's not, it's not a conscious effort, but it's there. And they do it, and then you have the CIA working along with the Hollywood, Hollywood, uh, with Hollywood movies. Zero Dark Thirties was obviously an attempt to show that the extraordinary uh, interrogation worked. When we used to give 
intelligence to our Western friends, and they'll ask us where it has come from. We would say interrogation. They'd say, no, we don't believe your interrogation. So, you know, narratives and stories change with circumstance. And uh, there are still stories out on what, what happened to Osama bin Laden, how he was caught out, why he was, how he was caught out. So uh, narratives play a big role. And, and for us, you know, we were colonized. The British didn't come to, because they were uh, from the Salvation Army or they were Red Cross volunteers. They were there to make money, to build. They were, they were an imperial power. So they behaved like one. And, uh, but we must learn from that. We need not hold that as a rancor about it. But we, we let them do it. They did it. But what has happened is that over time, we've not been able to get over building your own story yourselves. We rely, we, we take, we, we love uh, approbation from the West. Oh, they've, they've, they've liked what I said. Or they don't like what I'm saying. I shan't say it. My interests and the United States' interests may not tally all the time. And they need not. So we have to be able to put our point of view across to the West, to the Western governments. And look at the way these days these farmers are protesting all over in the West, I believe, because of some law introduced in India. That is giving a narrative to, to the West, which may not be true. So we have to counter that. And there is also, I believe, there is no... no uh, Nothing to be gained by complaining. Nothing to be complaining that the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Economist says this, that, and the other about it. They will say it. You just learn to counter them or you anticipate and say what you want to say and have the means to say it. Our problem is we don't have the means so far. Everything is controlled by a few companies, media companies in the West. Reuters, AFP, CNN, the voice comes from there. We we don't have the means yet. How did you become interested in narratives to begin with? When I joined service, when I was at college, let's say, we had the 62 war with China. We had the 65 war with Pakistan. I was still at college. And uh, soon after the 62 war, we had visitors from the United States and uh, Britain. I think Averill Harriman and Duncan Sands, they came. And to evaluate how much interest, how much they could help us, very fine, very fine gesture. But there was a, a clause, a hidden clause that, you know, we'll give you, but you know, you might want to talk to Pakistan about Kashmir kind of thing, a gentle nudge, but you do this. Okay, that passed. 65, we had a conflict with Pakistan and they, they had attacked us. Yeah, then we found that the Time magazine would say three third-rate armies fighting each other for nothing. That was the... You know, you, you started getting feeling that here we are, 
trying to fight ourselves, find our way out. But uh, nobody wants to pay attention to what we want to do. And so it continued to happen that you could see that democracy was more and more a slogan. As I, as when I joined RAW, then I started to realize that certain things are only slogans. They're not meant to be taken seriously. The narrative is that the United States would bring peace and harmony and democracy to the rest of the world by defeating the Soviet Union and commons. Fine. Accepted. But who was helping the, uh, this fight? 65 dictators all over the world. You have a narrative for peace and freedom, but you're getting support only from dictators. So there is, there was this anomaly. There was this, uh, and then of course, uh, when, when we had the um, invasion of Iraq during Bush's time, Al-Qaeda and weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, and so, how he was treated afterwards, or how Gaddafi was treated afterwards. So it left me with a feeling that, you know, human rights, democracies are good slogans to use. There is no such thing as democracy in the international sphere. Democracy exists only inside each individual country, if it does. Outside, only sovereignty is equal, perhaps. Powerism. Power resides where it does, with the powerful. So they dictate what is to be the narrative, what is to be the storyline for the day. That's why I thought I should put my, that narratives don't have to be completely based on truth. You have to tell the world of your superiority, your invincibility, your nobility. The love for freedoms and, and democracy. But then the, the United States also covered its entire population with surveillance. When they listened into all conversations in the name of war on terror. That's what I try and describe. Narratives can go wrong. I've talked about the Chinese, the Russians, the, the Brits, of course. They are the originals. They are the original uh, United States. And I've also said what we should be doing. What is, well, who are we? How do we describe ourselves to the rest of the world? And how should we be doing it for the future? If you want to be something, you must have a narrative. I'm personally interested in narratives yeah. and identity, but it's not often something mm. that's associated with intelligence because people think that, you know, people that work in intelligence are all hard-headed and it's all about how many tanks do you have and you know yeah. how, <laughs> how, how big is your industry but, but in your most recent book you say that the power of narrative is more powerful than anything that comes yeah. out of the barrel of a gun yes more and long-lasting and long-lasting yeah and this shows that the intelligence agents can be sensitive souls they can do art and, art and literature and music. <laughs> it's not all science and, and numbers. No, it's not, not always. <laughs> and, you, and you mentioned Hollywood. That, that, that made me think, is, does the R&AW have a link with Bollywood? 
Uh, I know a lot of people have asked me that too, but no, we don't have. They do bring out some movies um, which, uh, which are a bit of an embarrassment. <laughs> it's so rem not re remotely connected to the real thing. They've had a few movies where they've shown glimpses of having trying to understand. And it was pretty well done. And I thought, but not a story uh, which is purely based on espionage. There's nothing like that movie. Uh, the, the movie which we saw recently about Rudolf Abel. Colonel Rudolf Abel. Um, he was swapped for yes. Francis Gary Powers, if I recollect. Yes, that's right. I, that's I, I. I begin one of my chapters with that story, and how the narrative, how Stalin was able to change the narrative, not just because Abel, but others got the bump. And what role do you think intelligence agencies can play or should play in shaping narratives? Are there particular challenges or dangers there? I would think that the intelligence agencies have a role, but sort of limited role to change the narrative. Narrative changing has to be a little more open and, and uh, to be acceptable. If it is done surreptitiously, they have this, you can, you can do a movie, you can do, uh, you can write books, you can, you can fund books, you can fund, uh, NGOs, you can do those kinds of things. That the, the intelligence agencies are pretty good at. But the big picture has to come from on high. The intelligence agencies become the executors, not originators. They shouldn't be made the originators of the narratives, but maybe the executors in certain fields. They can glamorize a movie. They can, I mean, the United States would give its, for, for many of these movies, uh, Tom Clancy movies, the actual air, airports and aircraft for filming the shots. So that level of coordination between the producer, between the actors and the government agency involved has to be subtle and trusted. Then you can do it. But if somebody is going to go around talking about it and say, oh, the RAW helped me make this movie, then it doesn't sell. <laughs> I mean, some people would find that a little concerning, um, the government getting involved with the entertainment industry to try to advance a particular narrative. Yeah, no, that, that's true. Narrative, therefore, have to be done by the society. What do we want to be? How do we want to be seen? And it should be left to the individuals sitting together and working out. And after some time, it becomes automatic that, you know, you, you, that if, if the government say, I shall tell you what to do, then it becomes, a, it becomes eventually just a propaganda. And you must be able to have the ability to take criticism. Credibility requires that somebody must be able to criticize also. If everything is hunky-dory and everything is doing well and nobody is bothered, but anything that's wrong, then it is not a good story. Your storyline has to be real. 
it has to be a societal narrative. It has to come from society. Yeah, as yeah, it, it has to come from. It has to come from society. Is that part of India's story since uh, independence? The search for a unifying narrative. Not till recently. You know, for a long time we carried on with this belief that everything is fine with us. We live. Uh, secularism was given a, a slant, which meant appeasement. That's what the majority began to think. And I, we we always say that governments have to be secular, but the people have to be tolerant. Only then it works. Individuals, you and I, are not secular. We don't have to be secular. We don't have to be equidistant from all religions, but we have to tolerate each other's religion or beliefs or thoughts or, or speech or whatever. But over time, it became necessary for, for, you know, we are a majority Hindu country. And the ethos of any country comes from its majority. And it's either Christian or Jewish or Islamic. It comes from the majority, religion and language, maybe. So when the Indian votes, and he votes now, more and more for BJP, it doesn't necessarily mean that India is becoming a majoritarian Hindu regime country. The Hindus will vote, and whoever votes for a party, that party will win. That's democracy. Now, if they vote a, a, a right of center party, it doesn't make that party necessarily a majoritarian party which will exclude everybody else. But this is this is the story which we hear from the West about us. We're always a Hindu nationalist party, the BJP, is a favorite uh, description. We don't call the, the Republican Party or, or the Christian Democratic Party of Germany any such name. But they are, they, they, the you know, U.S. president goes to a Christian breakfast the first Tuesday of February every year. Since the time of Eisenhower, only Christians are invited. So everybody has a, has, has a majority theme, which doesn't mean excluding others. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. How does Indian society map onto India's intelligence agencies? Is, is, are the intelligence agencies reflective of society? Are they bringing people in from different religions, different uh, groupings, or is it something different? You mean uh, ethnically or ethnically, religion? religiously, linguistically? To be quite honest, when we started off, it was 
it was monthly ethnic monthly religion monthly linguistic everything but there was uh, hesitation after the partition of india to take muslims into the service intelligence service but that is changing that has begun to change and people do realize that patriotism is not the uh, birthright of only one community one religion or one uh, so that has begun to change and it will normalize one day but it's not any more a conscious effort to keep some up it was it must it started it's off a bit like that yes i remember when i was when i was studying indian indian intelligence as that there's more muslims in india than there as in pakistan you're talking about i would say about 250 million muslims wow. right? that's that's not a minority really in many senses of the term it's, it's a huge it's 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 the four times the size of uh, france's population so it's a big number and they they're doing very well in many fields and they have problems of course they have problems right but their problems i think are not much different from what the problems of every other indian in similar circumstances were has been so uh, to give it a religious color is is a favorite political ploy of course and what some of our best commentators some of our best journalists artists are muslims and it never made matter to us it doesn't still matter to us pakistan has does not know how to live with another religion they don't have any other religion that's it. that is their problem they want to be islamic but they want us to be secular in an islamic country can never be secular an islamic country is always islamic but you hindus uh, indians should be secular well, that won't change really we're not going to be changing and and we are secular because the majority is secular and tolerant there are there are there are some bad ones that's there in every every say, system some extremists a lot of our listeners are from the five eyes community to what extent did you interact with um people from those communities during your career we interacted largely with the british and americans canadian because also because the diaspora was there and the diaspora those days was sometimes tended to be anti indian and or you know the famous um, kanishk air, air india bombing in 1983 84 it was shot down it exploded just short of cork in ireland and uh, the entire aircraft had been blown up it was done by sikh terrorists so there was a lot of liaison with the canadians and the indian intelligence it had to be and the diaspora in, in britain is a big one in um, the united states as well but the other countries uh, not not so much australia new zealand didn't have that we in indians didn't have the need to be to develop that kind of a relationship then things are different now there are other reasons to be cooperating now you have the quad and so on and so forth so there will be more cooperation here 
Talk a little bit about the quad. The uh, four-nation grouping of uh, what well, the Chinese once asked us. After retirement, I'd met some Chinese, and they asked, is this the Asian NATO? So uh, they were worried that that would be about 10 years ago when the thing was really being thought of. So I think the Quad has a long way to go. It's still an idea which and the Indians will remain a little skeptical about joining, formally joining an alliance. They would do everything else, but to fight wars on each other's behalf, I don't know whether it would work, and I don't think it will work. I don't expect the Australians to come and help us if the Chinese were to do something to us tomorrow. So, uh, each ultimately, it's each country to itself and cooperation to keep China in control or semblance of control, not to fight wars, really. From your position as RNAW chief, what are some of the major things that you were involved in or what are some of the highlights that the organization was involved in during then? I'm afraid intelligence-wise, I wouldn't be able to say much. Security-wise, I'd, I'd mentioned that, you know, we were in the throes of having to deal just a year before I took over the... the we had Kargil, we had uh, hijacking of the aircraft, terror-related activities, we had uh, terror became the main uh, story of our lives uh, during that period I was there. And not so much hot wars, or, but terror from Pakistan, terror in Pakistan, terror by Pakistan in uh, Afghanistan, that became the centerpiece of the story. And uh, we had a lot of exchanges with the West on that. And that was used to be the, shall I say, almost the everyday story. And we did other things alongside. We did China and Pakistan. But this was the hard battle most of the time. So terrorism became the major thing that the RNAW was dealing with from 2000 on? Actually, we started dealing with terrorism in the 90s when the Pakistanis unleashed uh, various terror groups into Kashmir. And one after another, they'd, they'd create one, remove it, bring another, bring another, Lashkar-e-Taiba, Jaish Muhammad, before that, Izbul Mujahideen, all these various groups. So keeping a watch on terror, keeping a watch on Pakistan was took a lot of one's uh, resources and it continued till then ultimately it happened in 2008 you remember bombay november yeah. 26 2008 when bombay burnt really for three days it was a terrible attack it was uh, we we called we like to call it our 9-11 although the casualties were less but it was and there was a lot of anger there was probably even Probably the government thought of retaliation, but didn't. So that's where it ended. And terror hasn't stopped. It still continues uh, as a one of the major battles. Only last year we had incidents in uh, Pulwama, 
we struck back in with an air raid and these major terror attacks don't come every day it's once in two years once in three years by the nature of things but everyday terror is there it's less now it's less than what it was there's a horrible period of the 90s when 300000 kashmiri hindus had to leave srinagar overnight very few people ever reach the position of being you know the chief of an organization what what's it like to have all that responsibility a lot depends on how in the indian system and how good your relationship or how good your political leadership is to you that makes the job much easier you know it, there is there is immense tension in the in the job because well anything can go wrong any day and you will be held responsible if there is a, another bomb blast somewhere else so but if the leadership is is supportive and it's understanding and also contributes to helping you decide things or takes decisions for you but you know, that need political clearances that helps a lot that takes away the anger the anxieties uh, it keeps the blood pressure down keeps it even <laughs> <laughs> and who does the rnaw chief report to the prime minister uh, directly to the prime minister wow and for our listeners um within the rnaw is it similar to for example the cia where you have analysts you have operators yeah. you have technical officers yes 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 okay we have all and, that and one of the things that i'm personally fascinated in is the soviet afghan war i wondered if you could tell us a little mm-hmm. about that if that was part of your career i was still young in the service and i wasn't handling afghanistan so my knowledge about afghanistan was what i read in the papers not what mm. they were doing or not doing inside you know you operated with the restrictive security principles so one didn't get to know much and one didn't ask too many questions that was taboo okay but uh, as one as one went along and when the second when 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 the war on terror started bush's time then of course everybody knew then we were i was in the thick of it in the sense that we were sitting there at the head with the afghan global war on terror had started so there was a lot of activity there was a lot of exchanges with the afghans but that's it naturally i mean if you have something happening in your neighborhood your intelligence agencies will get involved and will want to know help the government come to a decision of some sort what are some of the things that you think our listeners should know about indian intelligence agencies there are three main intelligence groups today groupings or agencies today one is the intelligence bureau which is the oldest which was formed uh, by the british originally and it was not called intelligence bureau in the first place called the political branch and then it became the intelligence bureau later and 
RAW came in 68. And in 2004, we had the NTRO, the National Technical Resources Organization, like the American uh, NSA. It's, it's for purely for technical intelligence. So they do that. The, many of our para, paramilitary organizations, we have a large number of them. The Border Security Force, the Indo-Tibetan Border Force, the Border Force, and the Special Services Bureau, which is for the Nepal and Sikkim borders, uh, Nepal and Bhutan borders. So they do tactical intelligence for them, for their own requirements, you know, for cross-border. The Army has, the Armed Forces have the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, with air intelligence, military intelligence, and air naval intelligence separately. So they also do mostly tactical intelligence and purchases, military hardware acquired by, they don't do political analysis. The RAW does, is an all source agency, which is supposed to provide to the government intelligence related to all strategic aspects that relate to the security of the country, which could include military, economic, political, scientific, all that. So we take material from everybody else, uh, from their, so their, their reports, our own reports, our own signal intelligence, whatever you can lay your hands on, from the NTRO to get a composite picture and then present it to the government. We don't do policy. They may ask, the government is willing to, is free to ask us, but on matter of principle, we merely give you the assessment of the situation. It's for the political leaders or the Indian Cabinet Committee on Security to take a decision. And is there an Indian equivalent of the President's daily brief? No, it's not a daily brief in the sense that it is presented to the President every morning. In India, it's given to him, it's sent by, by mail to him, to the Prime Minister, every evening, which is one document that the head of the organization must sign and be held so responsible is, next morning. <laughs> this is something that you had to sign off on and be responsible yes. for. Every, every, every night, <laughs> sign off and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> Were there ever any times where you signed off on something and crossed your fingers? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not in a major way, but yeah, <laughs> it was pardonable. <laughs> a lot of the energy of Indian intelligence is focused towards Pakistan. Would that be fair to say? Look, it's, it's changing now, it's, it's changing in the sense that China is, is, is a big problem for all of us. And we have, I think the, the, that would be a, a zone where they would need to pay much more attention to what the Chinese could, might do. We've seen what has happened in, in our borders in Ladakh. Two years ago, it was in, the, in near Bhutan. And there is a, a sense of aggression in China, 
maybe it's premature hubris i don't know but xi jinping seems to be somebody in a hurry and he is as we like to call him the chairman of everything he, he owns everything there and the party owns everything else so there is there is a push and you can't have a normal relation or trade relations with a country which is going to do this to you i mean at least for us it is not not possible to have a border which is undemarcated which is liable to be transgressed in by any side any time you have a nuclear power to a north a nuclear power to a west and the one on the west is willing to use it any time it carries on its nuclear it carries on its terrorism under a nuclear umbrella but despite that pakistan has not made a difference well not made a difference to our lives but china can so that would be the ultimate threat pakistan you i think we will learn to handle it pakistan is probably clawing itself on its own feet so it's okay this has been absolutely fascinating thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me it's been great talking to you thank you for having me and for on your show keep the good parts there right Oh, well, <laughs> make sure. Where I look good. Where I look good. <laughs> <laughs> That's all of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take care. Bless you. Take care. Bye. 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 The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website spymuseum.org for more information hey listeners we're always looking for ways to improve the n2k cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity we've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback Hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com/survey. That's cyberwire.com/survey and share your feedback now.